and welcome to The Grid Podcast. My name is Simon Gallagher. I am Managing Director at eSmart Networks and today we're going to talk about that mega exciting topic of network capacity. Network capacity on the electricity networks can have a huge impact on electric vehicle projects, industrial and commercial projects and renewable connections as well. So this week we've got an absolute expert to talk us through all aspects of Electrical Capacity, which is Brian Murhead, one of our grid connection managers here at eSmart Networks. Brian has spent his entire career in the power engineering industry, getting battery storage systems, electric vehicles, big factories, everything you can think of connected to the electricity network, and in particular, finding capacity to get it connected. And also joining us is David McDonald, our technical director here at eSmart Networks, who's got a lifetime's history on the Electricity Networks in Northern Ireland and right across the United Kingdom. So David, do you want to give us an introduction into yourself and what you do during the day, please? Certainly. Thanks, Simon. And first of all, thanks very much for having me in the podcast. Great to be here. Hopefully your listeners will be able to understand my accent, but you've already prepped them a bit with that Northern Ireland accent of yours. So uh, yeah, been in the industry about 20 years here and yeah, a lot of that time has been around looking at grid capacity, network capacity, and yeah, it's certainly becoming much more of a complicated matter now. And I think this is a well-timed podcast so we can understand it better. Definitely. I mean, you say thanks for having you, but it's your turn basically, isn't it? Yeah, well, there's, <laughs> I don't think it any way out of it. No, definitely not. And Brian, do you want to just, I know listeners to the podcast will be familiar, you're a regular face on here, but for those new visitors, please just give us a bit of a background on yourself. Yeah, so I'm Grid Connection Manager here at eSmart Networks. I work in the team primarily. My day job is all about network capacity, modeling out the networks uh, at all voltages, looking for capacity for renewable projects, electric vehicle charging projects, large-scale, small-scale battery storage projects, and uh, industrial electrification projects as well. So yeah, spend a lot of time in the in the day job with the team here in uh, Belfast, modeling out networks for capacity. Definitely. So basically, if you can connect it to the grid, you get it connected. Yep, that's pretty much <laughs> the, the brief. Right. I mean, network capacity is one of them terms that you know we were always familiar with and we always used, but all of a sudden it's become into the vocabulary of a whole wider bunch of people because people who develop factories, people who are trying to get electric vehicle charging infrastructure connected to the network, people who are trying to get good quality renewable generation connected network are coming up against all these kind of capacity problems. But capacity is not just one thing. So do you just want to give us a bit of an introduction into what do we mean by capacity, Brian, please? Yeah, so I think it's good to break this down and actually understand what it means when a DNO is telling you there's no capacity or there's limited capacity. So effectively, I've, I've kind of tried to break it down into six or seven points. You've got thermal capacity, voltage rise or drop, you've got fault level, uh, you've got harmonics, you've got charging current can be an issue on long long cable circuits, and then you've got system stability and frequency. And uh, I'm sure some developers will definitely be familiar with thermal voltage and potentially fault level. But uh, as we're finding with increased levels of renewable penetration, with increased loads in the network, with industrial electrification and EV charging, all of these capacity elements particularly some of the more niche ones are all coming more to the fore. So you really need to have a good understanding of what is the different elements of capacity, what are the capacity elements that affect your project, 
in order to then work out, well, what are the potential solutions here to make my project feasible and actually get connected? Definitely. So, I mean, we'll start with thermal capacity, but you know, thermal capacity is the easiest one to understand. And from an operational point of view, when me and you write on the network, yep. David, thermal capacity was everything. Is how much megawatts we could we could get down a cable across a piece of switchgear. But yeah, just get us into the, the the basics of thermal capacity. Yeah, just before I go any further, I do want to point out, we're going to use some analogies here that definitely will not be 100% accurate. So if there's any university lecturers listening, power system engineers, just cover your ears now before we go any further. Textbook readers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thermal capacity is the easiest one to understand and it's the one that most people will be familiar with. And to use the water pipe analogy, it's how big's your water pipe? How much water can you put down the pipe? How big's the cable in the ground? How much electrical energy current can you put down through that cable? The reason it's called thermal capacity is obviously when you put a electrical energy down a cable, that cable heats up. So it's the thermal limits on your actual cable. And it could be transformers or other bits of kit right across the network. Yeah, and it's more complicated than what most people think, actually, because it's it's not just how much... A cable doesn't have one rating, does it, David? It's got a number of ratings depending on, on what... Yeah, just talk us through the different things that impacts the ratings of cables, for example. Yeah, so it depends what ground they're laid in. Ground temperature, actually, uh, I believe in Northern Ireland here, we have a different ground temperature rating than in GB. Did not know that. Yeah. It's colder, um, obviously. Colder, obviously. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and, and overhead lines as well, you'll get uh, seasonal ratings as well, summer, winter. So yeah, lots of different factors that come in there, but you really want to be looking for where's the weak point or what's the limiting factor on that bit of network that uh, will be exposed to the load. And what about um, dynamic line rating? I remember many years ago going to an IET competition that Judy McElroy in Northern Ireland Electricity Networks won because she was presenting a project on dynamic line rating. I think it was one of the transmission lines in Northern Ireland. It might have been the one that goes that big substation uh, near Oma, did that ever take off, or whatever happened with that project? And no, where we use the instead of just assuming it's a certain temperature, it we use the actual temperature on the day and the, and the wind chill of the. Yeah, there were certainly strong trials. Like it was a, nearly ahead of its time. You know, we hear about smart networks now and maximizing grid capacity, but back in the day, that was probably leading edge in terms of looking at uh, actual temperature, see if there's even uh, impact from wind as well in terms of cooling effect of wind. Etc. Etc. So yeah, I think trial went ahead, uh, went reasonably well. I'm not sure if it's still in play or not, but um, yes, those types of projects are sort of things that we need to be looking at going forward. Yeah, and just to sort of explain it, so you know, rather than have an overhead line's got a rating of 200 MVA all winter long, if it's really windy and it's really cold, then they will, that line will cool quicker. So we could, in theory, up the capacity. But yeah, and we're bound to have. The summer ratings in Northern Ireland, <laughs> yeah, they're bound to be a bit different actually than what's actually allowed because, uh, yeah, we don't get those high temperatures or indeed up in the in the north of GB and, and Scotland as well. So, yeah, I think it's it's actually working against real figures as opposed to assumed values or sort of average ratings. Yeah, definitely. And sometimes the constraints aren't just the cables themselves. So a lot of our renewable customers connecting 132KV Solar generation, for example, sometimes the limiting factor on the towers is the not only the temperature it's rated to, 70 degrees, for example, but the fittings and the insulators and all as well. It's all designed as a package, not so it's not just the conductor. No, that's right. You have to look at the whole network as a whole and, and all the sort of supplementary elements of, of what makes up that network to ensure you know that you rate the line at your weakest point. 
Yeah, definitely. So, Brian, do you want to give us just a, a basic example of thermal capacity then with some numbers in it for our engineer listeners? Yeah, so thermal's the easiest to explain, so I'll happily take this one. You might have a 33 kV cable circuit. Could be rated at, say, 40 megawatts. We'll use megawatts instead of MVA just for the engineers out there because most people will be familiar with megawatts. Even though we don't care about megawatts in our <laughs> field, do we? It's all about MVA. We'll use megawatts in a way. So 40 megawatt rated cable circuit. There's 30 megawatts of load already on there and you want to connect a 20 megawatt factory. So the 30 megawatts of load that's already on there plus your 20 megawatts is going to take that cable circuit up to 50 megawatts in excess of its rating. So in a nutshell, the traditional way to deal with that is, well, you need to install a bigger cable that can do, say, 50, 60, 70 megawatts and provide the thermal capacity for your factory. And generally, thermal capacity is what most people recognize. So when we say a transformer can only do 40 MVA, not 90. It's because it's thermal capacity. It's because over that temperature, the windings would start to break down because it, it it's just got too hot. That's what it is really, isn't it? Yeah, effectively. And, and it is probably nine times out of 10 when you're trying to connect a project and you're being told there's no capacity. Thermal is the most common one especially probably 10, 20 years ago. What are you trying to say? Back in my day? Yeah, back in my day, thermal was the one that you looked at most. And, you know, certainly that's that's the area that you have to start. Um, but as we're saying, we'll get into this. It'll be much more complex stuff now as we move forward. But, you know, the other thing as well around that is there's always a good bit of work with the customer as well just to understand their exact requirements, particularly if you're that sort of maybe in that industrial space. There's like a, there's a wish list of, you would know, like, what did you say, 30? But actually, if you went to 20 there, and we're able to manage that in such a way, then there's maybe no system reinforcement or, or minimal system reinforcement. So there's that conversation always to be had around what impact it has in terms of what headroom's available and actually what the customer really requires. Yeah, or even to give the example, we had it on a, a different episode of, of an EV charging station electrifying a, a bus depot where you only actually need that capacity through the night when the, the rest of the load in the network has dropped away. So there, there is all sorts of smart ways to be looking at this to get solutions to get your project connected and avoid, you know, nobody wants to be paying to relay a 10 kilometers of cable route. Absolutely. I think that's a key point is that by finding the tipping point, you can sometimes just tweak the capacity that you're requesting down and have a massive impact on the price because you eradicate the reinforcement. No, totally. And I think that's where the balance is. And that's the conversations that we can have with a customer to say, well, do you really need that? And, you know, is there another time? Is it a time of day thing? And it, that really does just kind of start to enable us to sort of customize your connection request, I suppose, and, uh, you know, ensure that you're getting what you need. Sometimes you know, there's no getting away from it. You will need to reinforce, and that's just the nature of it, but it's worth having those conversations up front. Another thing, we'll maybe do a, book, a different separate podcast on this, but uh, you've got like active network management systems then as well. A lot of renewable connections especially are, are coming in on, on active network management schemes where things are being curtailed at certain times of the day. It's important to really review those in detail, get the right data from the DNO so that you can do a proper engineering review. And the bit the DNO can't do there is get sort of inside the developer's head to understand what are those actual needs, what can you live with here. And, and then tailor that connection option to make it feasible. And we thought thermal was easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we think we went on a bit longer <laughs> than we thought we were going to, to be honest. The, it's also worth saying that when it comes to demand, connections, thermal capacity is nine times out of ten the issue. 
But we do now come on to other issues, uh, so volt rise and volt drop. So generally this can become an issue more so on generation connections, Brian? I'd say that's fair. So yeah, just to try and explain that at a high level, voltage, to use the water pipe analogy, voltage is kind of like the pressure that's pushing the water up the pipe. Now the, the network operators under the electricity, safety, quality and continuity regulations, they need to maintain the voltage within a, a certain set of parameters. So for example, on your domestic house supply, it can't go above plus 10% or minus 6%. So that's roughly about 216 volts to 253 volts. So the DNO has to provide you your voltage within that range. And that's to stop your TV over voltage blowing up or all our equipment in your house failing. And there, there's different thresholds then as you go right up through the voltages. So to do this in a traditional network, it was a lot easier because the power only flowed one way. And obviously as power flows down a network to the load, the load pulls the voltage down. So you would set up your voltage at your substation at a higher level so that when the power was heading out into the network to the load, it would drop off slowly and maintain within that threshold. The problem you have then when you put generation on, so let's say a 500 kilowatt anaerobic digestion. So let's say a 500 kilowatt AD plant. Uh, we have quite a few of those across Northern Ireland and it's connecting on to a rural 11 kV spur. Your substation was originally set up to serve load and let the voltage drop as the power flowed out around that circuit. Whereas the power's now going back up the ways, that's then creating a voltage rise back at that substation. So that substation's probably geared to be sitting up towards the higher threshold of the voltage limit. So it doesn't often take much then to push that substation over the voltage limits, and, and that's where you end up then having voltage capacity issues with your connection. Which is why it's mostly on generation connections because it's it's pushing the voltage up rather than than bringing it down. Do you know incidentally why it is plus ten minus six rather than plus or minus five? I don't. So obviously two forty used to be the nominal voltage in the UK. So when we harmonise within the EU, which is obviously don't need to do much harmonisation anymore, we agreed to go to two thirty, but we didn't. So all all the secondary taps and all the distribution uh, transformers are all still set at four three three no volts. So we're still nominal two forty, but actually the plus ten minus six aligns with two thirty plus minus five. So that's why there you go. The old adage of low volts is better than no volts isn't really doesn't hold true then. No. Okay. Yeah. So basically, volt rises because the DNO needs to keep the voltage to within statutory limits. So for example, at eleven kV, that's plus minus ten percent. And if we put a big generation on the end of the line, that line was set up to have a nice voltage profile along it and that will deeply upset that. Is there anything we can do about volt rise or is it a terminal if it's going to be an issue on a project? So you, you can reinforce the network and basically lower the impedance of the line. Now we're getting very technical, but uh, that effectively helps maintain sort of a, a more stable voltage ac across that circuit. But again, you are into then costly reinforcement and, and everything else that, that comes with that then as well. Okay, so is there any other issues with voltage rise in? Brian, do you want to tell us about step voltage and transformer tap changer issues as well, maybe? Yeah, so if you want to refer back to the, I think it was episode four in the podcast where we went into battery storage in a lot of detail, but voltage uh, step change, so rapid fluctuations in your voltage is something that particularly applies to batteries that are wanting to ramp up and down really fast. And just to briefly explain, you've got tap changers in your transformers, which are basically the gearbox of your transformer. And it, it can't shift gears quick enough 
to keep the voltage at the right level if your uh, battery is operating within milliseconds. So again, that is a particular one to watch out for on battery storage systems. But again, we, we did go into that in quite a bit of detail in episode four. Yeah, we do see more and more of that, don't we? Where that is definitely becoming an issue. All right, so on to the next one then, which is fault level. So we did a whole podcast on fault level. So do listen to episode three, if fault level floats your boat and you want to listen to more about that. But yeah, give us a, a bit of a summary explanation just to give us a rounded view of capacity issues, Brian, because fault level probably is the number one issue now on EHV generation, it's fair to say. Yeah, probably a mix of fault level and thermal, I'd say. So yeah, just to recap, on fault level, you've got your circuit breakers, which are there to open and close circuits, particularly open circuits. If, say, a, a person in a digger hits an overhead line, you want that circuit to open to make it safe. That circuit breaker will have a rating for the amount of current or power flowing through it that it can break. And if you go above that rating, well, your circuit breaker might weld shut or you're going to have a failure of, of some description. I mean, it'll blow up. Probably, yeah. yeah. So uh, the DNOs have to monitor fault levels on their network, make sure their network is safe and that it will operate correctly so that the fault levels aren't exceeding uh, those ratings. So the types of things that give rise to fault levels, so generation in particular, so if, if you have a fault to earth, so somebody in a, a digger bucket hits an overhead line, basically all of the power and all of the generation will want to go to earth through that fault and you get a massive inrush of current that is multiple times what that circuit's normally rated to. Which is a good thing though. Sometimes you talk about fault level like it's a bad thing, but the way we engineer our networks is that we need to know there is a fault. So we set them up that when we have a fault, either to phase or to earth, we get thousands and thousands of amps of currents flowing so we can detect it and then we can chop it off. But the problem is it's a very violent action to interrupt that thousands of um, amps of fault current. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose... Basically, uh, without getting into too much more detail, as you connect more generation to the network, that pushes the fault levels up and you do get to the point and it, it has become quite prevalent where the fault level on a piece of network will exceed the circuit breakers back at that substation and then you're into quite a, a big project then to basically refurb a full large substation to re-kit it out with all new circuit breakers and everything else. Yeah, and even with like the advancement of distributed generation and decentralization like that all is impacting even lower down the network than it used to in terms of fault level. So it's, uh, yeah, it's challenging now to see fault level headroom as a, a something that really needs to be considered because of the amount of generation that's connected. In 90% of the time we talk about high fault levels, but have you had any experience with low fault levels, David, particularly on like big, long overhead rural spurs? Yeah, well, low fault levels obviously then cause another problem at the other end where it actually doesn't operate and then you can leave yourself either in danger from something that has fell on the ground and actually won't trip a breaker or, or blow a fuse. So yeah, there's lots of balancing around fault level to make sure that you've got the right thing there. And that's one of the things our designers look at quite extensively across, you know, not only HV but LV networks as well. There's lots of standards that they design to there to ensure that if there's a fault, then everything will operate the way it should. Yeah, just to illustrate the point, I can remember an example where there was some work going on to replace a primary switchboard, so the, the high-voltage network was running abnormal, but it sort of went unnoticed that there was a feeder went on for like 15, 20 miles, and it was quite low cross-section area cables, so the cable's impedance was so high, ultimately, that there was a fault at the end of it, and the, the protection never operated, the cable melted, so it burnt out. 
like 15 miles of HV cable. So the, there's a very real impact to getting fault level wrong. Yeah, no, totally. And we've, I'm sure with any of us that's been SAPs of a few examples of that um, over the years. So that is thermal capacity, voltage drop or voltage rise and fault level taken care of. So there's a few more to talk about, but it's fair to say they're a bit more niche or specialized. Isn't that right? Yeah, I'd say so. So we've, we've got harmonics, charging current and long cables, uh, system stability and frequency. But I think we may just cover them at a high level now and uh, we'll bring in some suitably qualified engineers from the wider team uh, and run maybe some separate po- deep dive podcasts on those. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I mean, hope none of my university lecturers are listening because harmonics have given me nightmares of Fourier and Laplace and all that stuff. That I'm freaking out already here. As a, any graduates or any students listening, you, you won't use it very often. Don't worry about it. Well, maybe more so in the future because will this this get into harmonics? Harmonics are becoming a, a bigger and bigger issue. Yes. So I mean, just before we get into that, then it, it is a serious point, particularly around electric vehicle DC chargers. So we are seeing huge issues with harmonics and harmonic distortion and harmonic pollution, essentially. So yeah, give give us a bit of a high level view of harmonics, but we will definitely do a harmonics special podcast because it is such a critical issue now. Yeah, so harmonics, how do I explain it? The best thing I can come up with is, yeah, polluted power or or dirty power, really. So without getting too technical, AC electricity travels as a sinusoidal waveform, and that's a nice, neat waveform. And basically, you get harmonic-emitting devices that basically distort that waveform and make it a bit kind of messy and, yeah, it's dirty power, really. So it'd be a bit like going to fill up and getting a tank of dirty diesel. So yeah, the network companies then, they, they have uh, obligations then to provide clean power to you within certain thresholds that's not overly distorted by harmonics. Am I right, David, that most of the harmonic problems come when we're converting from AC to DC? So, you know, for the non-engineers out there, direct current just flows in one direction constantly. But if we need DC, actually we can't get pure DC from AC electricity. We have to use power electronics to, to chop up the AC to get an approximation of DC, and that, that's the hugely disturbing factor. Yeah, that's the bit that causes a distortion in the waves, so you're starting to see those ripple effects transformed into the to the AC waves. So as uh, as Brian's saying, we'll definitely get a, an expert to talk in this space, but um, yeah, it's becoming much more of a, an area of concern, and certainly everybody in the industry is kind of learning this together in terms of not the theory of it, but how we practically outwork mm. what harmonics looks like across a network and what's it like before you connect, and what's it like after you connect. And that's ultimately what it's all about, is that you're not making the harmonic situations too much worse on the network. So, yep. they, so the, again, the DNO needs to stay within certain parameters. Totally. All right, the next one then is something I personally haven't come across much, because my history has been mostly in the southeast of England where we don't have big, massive, long cables, but just talk us through charging current issues on cables, Brian. Yeah, so in a nutshell, this is one to be aware of if you're developing more than likely large renewable projects, but with very long cable circuits. So if you're into sort of cable circuits going above kind of 15 kilometers, probably there thereabouts. Certainly if you're into kind of 20, 25 kilometer underground cable circuit connecting your wind farm, your solar farm, it could be a factory as well. Chart, you really need to be aware of charging current limitations then. And yeah, just in a nutshell, I suppose, an underground cable is like a big capacitor or like a big battery. So the longer it is, the more capacity that battery has, for want of a better way to explain it. And basically, it's really when you're switching on that cable, that battery 
it's a bit like fault level in reverse or some, some sort of analogy to fault level where there's just a massive inrush of current to charge up that huge battery. And if we go back to the fault level conversation where our circuit breakers are, are only rated to deal with a certain amount of current, well, if you build that battery too big or lay that cable too long, effectively that inrush current can exceed the ratings of your circuit breakers. So it again, it's a fairly niche one, but it's one to be aware of if you are looking at very long underground cable connections. Yeah, and, and just as a reminder, that's sort of once you're getting sort of 20 kilometers, 33 kV, that's the where it starts to become a problem. Yeah, and you're you're probably into, yeah, sort of like 10 megawatt plus type, you know, normally it's a sort of maybe a 40 megawatt type connection over some distance. I mean, whenever you turn on a transformer, you can actually hear the inrush current, can't you? That yep. boing that you get. Okay, System stability and frequency. Now, this is by far the most technical element of it, and you know that this does cause issues. Firstly, because it's not well understood, but secondly, because unfortunately, some of this comes out on the later stages of a project. Whenever we do the specialist studies, we need to do to understand this. So, yeah, give us a, a rundown on system stability and frequency. Yeah, so you're getting into more the transmission level at, at this point. So let's take frequency first, I suppose, and, and we will just cover this very light touch and, and get a, a suitably qualified expert It's in. lucky we have a few uh, <laughs> TSO, XTSO grid connections managers who will uh, develop this in a lot more detail than, yeah. than us distribution guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. we'll give it to the grown-ups today. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> but yeah, you've got the frequency on the system. It needs to be maintained at 50 hertz, plus or minus 0.5 hertz, and that's basically kind of tied back to the, the rotating machines in, in the thermal power plants. So in a nutshell, if your system goes outside of those thresholds, things start to shut down. And I think there was the example in the southeast of England, you'll know more about it than me when... Well, yeah, North Sea one and uh, Little Barford when it tripped um, to August 2019 it was. Um, yep. You start to lose a lot of uh, electricity supplies, you, you had all the railway outages and, and all the havoc that caused. So... Frequency is obviously a massive thing. It's controlled at a national level, at national grids, transmission level, and effectively at a very simple level, it's balancing supply and demand. So making sure you're generating enough electricity as the country or the network is using at that exact point in time. That obviously becomes more difficult when you move away from large thermal power stations that you can control to all this distributed generation up and down the country. So that obviously becomes more of an issue as you see renewable generation penetration grow on your network. And I do think that's going to become a bigger and bigger issue now in GB as the renewable penetration sort of up and from that kind of 20% level it's at at the minute. As you start to see it hit the levels that, that we've seen in Northern Ireland where almost 50% of annual mm, electricity yeah. is renewable, those issues start to become a lot more pronounced. And what about inertia then? Because, you know, back in the day we had big massive synchronous machines spinning, physical big turbines spinning. So... When we got a fault, those machines had so much inertia, they just rode straight through it. So why, why is that becoming an issue now with non-synchronous wind turbines, for example? Yeah, so that's probably the other big issue in terms of the TSOs, maintaining stability on the system. And um, for want of a better analogy, it's a bit like a couple of large big thermal plants. It was like a couple of large double-decker buses driving down the motorway. You could set a brick out on the motorway and the bus would just drive through it and drive on. When you move to a distributed generation world, it's like all those people in the buses are all pedaling down the motorway on bicycles. If you put a brick out in the motorway, the first person to hit that's going to come off and they're going to bring everybody down with them. Old domino effect. Yeah. yeah, because they just don't have that momentum 
to keep going through an event in the system. So your, your brick is kind of like a, a large fault on your network or a shock to the system. Well, that was really interesting, Brian. I think it is worth mentioning that we have a very um, real example close to home where, I mean, the island of Ireland, which is one electricity um, system, really, uh, one electricity market for sure. The level of the penetration of non-synchronous generation, what's that up to now, David? I think we're running 70 or 75% now. Um, so, yeah, that's something we'll definitely cover as a, a real good example of how what has been learnt here in the island of Ireland as a whole synchronous system can maybe be passed on to GB. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Ireland is one of the highest penetration in, in the world, actually. Yeah, no, that's certainly the stats that I've been hearing. So, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a good example and it's uh, there's been a lot of complexity behind it as well. But yeah, it's very much a, you need the whole industry to buy into that as well. Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you very much, David and Brian. That was the Grid Podcast for another week. This was a bit of a summary of all them um, different issues. Like Brian says, we are certainly planning a harmonics podcast in the very near future with probably David Padeshi, our resident expert in harmonics. Yeah, I was worried you were going to say David McDonald there, <laughs> but yeah, no, David Padeshi is the man for that. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Please do subscribe on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions, please put them in the comments on the YouTube channel, or you can email us at thegrid at esmartnetworks.co.uk. That is thegrid at esmartnetworks.co.uk. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.